0: How to help with chronic illness is the topic today on Magic 590's Talk of the Town. I'm Bob Cudmore. Our program's heard on Magic 590 plus 100.5 and in the North Country on 1410 and 96.9. Joining us is Patricia Finnell a research scientist, clinician, consultant, and founder of Albany Health Management Associates. She's internationally recognized as an expert in chronic medical and mental health conditions. In fact, you've developed your own uh, approach or explanation of the stages of chronic illness called the Fennell four-phase treatment model. Can you tell us about that?
1: Sure, and thanks for having me, Bob. What we've come to find out, and we started this work, this research clinical approach, oh, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. and What we came, we came to find out is that there's a common experience that people go through. Uh, whether the issue the condition is cancer which of course now is considered a chronic illness and it really wasn't all those years ago Mm -hmm. or its depression or its MS or its rheumatoid arthritis or its chronic fatigue syndrome is that people go through these four phases Mm -hmm. they go through a crisis phase a stabilization phase a phase, a third phase, where they come to recognize that what they went through in the, in the, in the crisis phase is really not going to leave, and they have a reckoning at a, at a, at a, at a much deeper uh, level, and an integration phase. They go through these four phases, and we found that this is a pretty universal, so far, we have found this to be a pretty universal experience. And regardless of what kind of diagnosis that you have received, mm-hmm. that these experiences are, are pretty generalizable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and we, what we also found is that as people go through these phases, if they go through it once and they go through it successfully, and I can say a little bit more about what that means, if they go through it once, twice successfully, with assistance, that at any subsequent phase versus stage, and I'll talk about that too in a second, that when they go through it subsequently, that it's easier to navigate, mm-hmm. much easier to cope with, and also for those around them, whether it's family, friends, caregivers, etc. So just to, to go back to this point, Part of, a long time ago, when I was developing the phases in the 80s, uh, we arrived at, I arrived at, that we really are talking about phases versus stages, because stages are fixed. Mm -hmm. And in a phase conception, you will go through it again. You will go through cycles in chronic conditions, again, whether we're talking about uh, depression or MS or lupus, something that I had been diagnosed with as a child, that you will go through these experiences over time repeatedly. Mm. But if we could identify and then build on, create a map, if you will, of what those experiences are like, then subsequently navigating relapses, remissions, ebbs and flows going, going into the future Will be easier,
0: hmm.
1: what, and people will function better.
0: What is it that your folks or you and um, bring to the people going through the phases? I mean, the people of what, what is uh, Albany Health Management what Associates? Do? What do you What do you do for people?
1: Well, we do a few things. Depends on who you are. If if you are a researcher, uh, part of what we bring to you, for example, one of our uh, partners, uh, consultants along the way with the Centers for Disease Control with a particular uh, disease entity. If you're a researcher, this framework, this model, provides you with a paradigm, a way of conceptualizing uh, what people experience that heretofore there, there really aren't a lot of paradigms for. Mm-hmm. Our, our science, our medical approach is built on an acute care approach, an acute care model. And there has been this sea change out there that we have moved, humanity has moved, if you will, from being acutely ill to being chronically ill. Hmm. So, and that's an important, very important point there. It's not, it's no longer one chronic illness per customer. It's several in the course of a lifetime. So this provides a paradigm. So that's what we do for them. For clinicians, we teach them how to do this work how to work with a population, whether, again, it's depression, anxiety, trauma, cancer, you name it, about how to really work with them over time. And if you're the patients, we teach you directly how to cope with something that, you know, diabetes. Mm -hmm. You're going to have it for the rest of your life. So how do we help? We teach them rules of the road, rules of engagement, phase by phase, how they can live in such a way that they are a person who happens to have diabetes and then over time gets diagnosed with sleep apnea and may get diagnosed Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. anxiety and may get diagnosed with cancer. As they go through that in life, they now have a map and they have a different way of coping and so do the people around them.
0: And along the way, you provide counseling, I mean, psychotherapeutic counseling?
1: It depends. It depends on the person's situation. Um, you know, one of our team members, I, some one of our team members, may provide counseling in the emotional aspect of coping. But let me say a little bit of more, more about that. Each of these four phases has three domains that we look at. There's the physical domain in crisis, the physical domain in stabilization, etc., etc. There's also the psychological-slash-spiritual in each domain. And then finally, the social. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the crisis phase, depending on what's going on, we're going to be looking at and helping you look at and help your care providers look at what's going on with you physically and how do we help you manage that, what's going on with you emotionally, what's going on, and socially, what's going on in the people around you. For example, you may be coping with your diagnosis of breast cancer or your diagnosis of MS or your diagnosis of acute depression pretty well, but your spouse may not be or your kids may not be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it depends on what your particular sets of, set of needs are. I generally think of us as project managers. I've worked a lot with engineers. I've been accused of having a bit of an engineer brain from time to time. Mm-hmm. And we look at the overview. That's a big part of what we do.
0: Hmm. Um, and for and the patient level or people who have these uh, conditions going through the phases, I mean, will insurance pay for your services?
1: Insurance will not pay for ours specifically. Because, again, we're looking at project management. We're looking at how do we help the patients cope, how do we help them sort through all the different um, treatments that they're considering, uh, the different uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, situations that they have been through or they're considering or that are being prescribed. Now, a subset of what we do if, if they are really having a lot of anxiety, depression, et cetera, in response to their condition, folks within our organization can definitely help them. Um, uh, and they, insurance can be accepted for those purposes. But for the overall piece, no.
0: Your uh, training w- was in social work, was it not? I, I believe, you, and maybe we'll, we'll get into that as an aside, uh, You, uh, as an undergraduate, you were a voice major, but uh, y- you were t- basically trained in, in social work. Is that kind of sort of what you're doing here?
1: Well, uh, actually, it, 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 we got to that. The way that, that it came about is I started uh, as a music major at... Uh, the College of St. Rose, which was one of the best decisions I ever made was going to the College of St. Rose. Mm-hmm. They really they taught me how to uh they honed my thinking, if you will. And while I was there I discovered science and uh I I uh took additional majors in addition to to the music work I was doing. And I went directly into a PhD program that was in uh, criminology and sociology. And out of that program, I went to work for a Governor's Commission, uh, where, which is now the Justice Center, where I was part of doing investigations and uh, began to develop forensic skills, which would serve me later um, in a lot of different ways. So on uh, depending on uh, what was happening, I accompanied uh, uh, retired uh, police detectives who were doing investigations into psychiatric centers, et cetera, mm. or developmental centers at the time. Uh, uh, information would be gathered, databases put together that I was part of that would assi- would um, assist, um, I believe the medical examiner at that time was, for us, was Mike Bodden. So I developed forensic teeth. Uh, the, the detectives, helped me learn how to be a detective, Mm -hmm. which then also helped me function as a scientist. While I was there, I developed an interest in hospice work. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that work, I needed to go get another degree. So then I went and got a degree in social work and did an internship, the first social work internship that hospice ever had in those very early years here in the Capital District. So I got a lot of background in... um, death and dying and loss and trauma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. While I was there, uh, I got roped back into forensic world when um, one of the first sex abuse units in uh, the country in the early 80s was being built over at St. Anne's Institute. And it it goes on from there where I kind of bounced back and forth between forensics Mm -hmm. and trauma work. And and then in the mid-80s, I decided it was Mm -hmm. time for me to start my own group my own company. So I really come at it from a few different perspectives. I come at it as, as first as a scientist, uh, secondly as somebody with a lot of forensic training, and third as somebody who cut her teeth at hospice, which was probably the best education I ever yeah. got.
0: In fact, I saw a quote from you that you were Happy or proud that you worked in—I think what you called the Camelot phase of hospice.
1: Oh my God! I wonder where that came from. Mm-hmm. That, which is true. Um, I was mm-hmm. extremely fortunate that um, in those very—the hospice movement was—and I don't pretend to be a hospice historian, mm-hmm. so, so right. take this with a bit of a grain of salt. But um, the hospice movement was really being reignited in the United States in the late seventies and early eighties. And uh, the founders of that movement helped start one here in Albany. So, uh, and I was part of that, not exactly the first, but the sort of second wave. And I was a kid in my, you know, early 20s. Went through a very rigorous application process of first doing an internship and then coming, being recruited between the other things I was doing. uh, Got recruited away from St. Anne's and back to hospice to uh, work there. Um, and it was at the, I, we, we were able to do everything. It was before, oh goodness, there were so many changes in the insurance industry and reimbursement, et cetera. And, uh, the training was the best. You, you, you were expected to do every role you learned about every other discipline, um, I ended up at one point being the director of volunteers and and really changing that program, did a lot of uh, national presentations on that, kind of started my public speaking there. Um, yeah, I, I was trained by the best, and, and it was great.
0: It was great. You know, we talked in the first part of the program about your uh, treatment model, if that's what it should be called, the mm-hmm. Fennel four-phase treatment model. <clears throat> but you've also written the book. You've written the Chronic Illness Workbook. Uh, tell us about that.
1: Well, that part of what happened there is I have, was presenting um, uh, for the APA. Variety... So what is
0: the APA?
1: Well, this one, uh, I, I had done a lot of presenting through the years for – a variety of different associations and in this regard I, this was the American Psychological okay. Association um, uh, it was unusual being somebody with us with a with a social work degree to be presenting um, for different disciplines but that's I've done a lot of presenting and teaching in fact we have a, a physician medical residency medical resident training program that we're running now mm-hmm. but um, I got approached about doing uh, writing up my work and um, the the workbook uh, and uh, Harbinger was one of my first presses. But what came first was the textbooks uh, with Wiley Press. So with Wiley, I wrote Managing Chronic Illness. Uh, I think using the four phase approach. I know <clears throat> I don't remember my own titles. Sure. And, and then there was uh, a, and we did a handbook, which was really a clinicians physicians textbook that was disease-specific and everything from cardiology through what people can experience psychologically, socially, um, everything you can imagine. And then out of that came, I really have to write something that speaks to the patients uh, and their experience and their family's experience and their friends' experience. And that speaks to and for me because I was somebody who wore all those hats from the time mm-hmm. I was a kid when I, too, was a patient mm-hmm. and continue to be.
0: Is is your, uh, what you bring to people, uh, is, is it that things can be better? I mean, that you're going through these phases and they seem very bleak, but you, you can't do away with them, but you can do something to make things better.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, I think... Um, th- sometimes the expectation that we should be happy about our disease process i think begins to get a little burdensome for the patients mm-hmm. um, rheumatoid arthritis hurts uh, there is uh, there's a, one of my wonderful uh, patients who's a, a political speech writer who will go unnamed had said to me you know i'm positive i'm positive that i feel like and she used an expletive but i won't i won't use it here she was being honest. Mm-hmm. I, what we help people do is integrate their illness experience, so that they can have their whole lives. I was on a panel the other night for uh, with the Albany um, uh, Pharmacy and uh, the Sage Health Sciences and myself and other uh, Dr. Lee Shapiro, other colleagues of mine, and what I talked about was. What we seek to create, what we seek to help the patients with and their families is balance. The patient needs to have the room to grieve their losses. The losses are real. Their suffering is real. And when we do that, when we help them do that, it creates the room, the space to have the le- the rest of their lives, including joy. Mm-hmm. If they spend time, too much time, mm-hmm trying to appear positive, Mm -hmm. trying to pass as well, it just compounds the suffering.
0: Right. So you have to live with it or accept it.
1: Well, acceptance is a big word. I think, though it's a good word, I think of it as these ideas first came to me in the 80s when I was at hospice. And it occurred to me, if we could treat the dying this well, why couldn't we treat the living this well? Mm -hmm. And part of what we did that was treating the dying so well is we made the space for them to cry and laugh, Mm. to grieve and enjoy the life, and to keep it in the day. Mm -hmm. And every day making choices about what do I choose to do today today. While I'm being real about my actual experience. Mm-hmm. So teaching people how to do that, you know, in the back of the workbook, um, you know, throughout the workbook, we, we talk about how we help people phase by phase cope with the crisis, be with the crisis, contain the crisis. In the second phase, in stabilization, you know, to it's me, it's, it's going to the bunkers, it's, it's learning how to change your life. If you have a serious, life-changing chronic illness, life as you know it is changed.
0: And we're almost out of time, and it's a whole other topic, but you mentioned your voice uh, degree from St. Rose, you study voice, and you continue to work as a jazz vocalist, right?
1: Well, (laughs) what happened was um, I had to make a choice, given my own um, physical limitations, as well as there's only so much time in a day, and trying to create balance that I stepped away from the music scene um, a long time ago. And then about, oh, I don't know, I'm going to go with 12 years, give or take, 12 years ago or so, um, I had stayed in touch with a lot of the uh, musicians, and the guy said, you know what, you might as well come back out. You've made <laughs> your bones, you, you, you wrote your books, you did this and that. And, um, and so I did, and of course... You know, I'm not that kid anymore, and that's the good news and the bad news. But part of the good news is that I was then in a position to not only function as a musician, but to function as a producer.
0: Okay. And I'm sorry, we are just out of time. Dare I say that you perform under uh, another name, Patricia Dalton? Right. And, and more it.
1: recently, I've combined the two because I've, I, for example, at the Swedish Institute, I was teaching. Um, uh, medical professionals, surgeons, et cetera, thoracic about the skills that made me a good scientist makes me a good improviser, and that's part of what we do in medicine.
0: Joining us on Magic 590's Talk of the Town was Patricia Fennell, the founder of Albany Health Management Associates. Talk of the Town is heard on Magic 590 plus 100.5 and in the North Country on 1410 and 96.9. This episode will be a podcast on albanymagic.com and bobcudmore.com. I'm Bob Cudmore.